Good morning. The sermon text for today is Psalms 1 and 2. You can find this passage in the Blue Pew Bible beginning on page 771. Listen as I read God's word. Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who, med- and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whether they do prosper, but as the, the wicked. They are the, the chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will sit will not stand in the judgment. For sinners in this assembly of the righteous, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. I haven't had the chance to meet you today. My name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. And as always, uh, so excited and uh, just thrilled to be able to be together with you uh, looking at God's word. As we come to Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together, I'd like to invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Lord, you know where every single person comes from this week. Not just geographically, but you know emotionally, spiritually where all of us are. You know that there are people here who 
feel like they are in the midst of despair, who feel like their lives are falling apart, their relationships are broken. Lord, you know, and you know those of us who come here today who feel tired, who feel worn out, who feel just sort of cold. And Lord, we ask that you would meet us. God, we're grateful that you ask us to come as we are. Lord, there is no putting on a pretend face of happiness. Lord, we get to come to you exactly as we are. And so we pray that you would meet us even today in our weakness, in our hurts, in our pains, as well as in our joys. And that we would see Jesus clearly here today. And it's in his name that we pray. Now all God's people said. Amen. Well, as Chris mentioned a few moments ago, we're going to be starting a new series today in the book, not the book, uh, just Psalm 1, actually just one psalm. Going to be looking at it for about the next nine weeks until just about the end of November. And uh, we're going to just go just about as slowly as we can through it. And we're going to try and just extract, try and sort of just unearth the treasures that exist in this one psalm. And uh, I'm really looking forward to that time together. We've titled the series, as you can see, The Prosperous Life because that's what Psalm 1 is actually all about. Psalm 1 shows us the way to find a life of prosperity, the way to find a life of blessing and abundance and joy. And so we're going to be looking at that over these next number of weeks. Even though Psalm 1 is an ancient poem, it was written thousands of years ago, it is still relevant for every single one of us who are here today in the modern world. And that's because every single one of us desires a life of prosperity. There's no one who wakes up and says, you know, today I would love to be miserable and destitute and suffer. No one says that. We all want to pursue a life of prosperity. And we may define that in slightly different ways from one another. Okay, so if you ask any given person on the street, you know, what what does a life of flourishing actually look like? You'd get a bunch of different answers. Some people would say it includes things uh, like certain experiences, certain material possessions or certain income or standard of living or uh, luxuries, conveniences, just all the fun little things that make life enjoyable and nice and uh, comfortable. Other people would say that a life of flourishing includes things like career achievements or success in your career or success in academics or success in sports, achievements in those areas. Other people would say uh, it would be financial stability would be one of those things that is what makes a life of flourishing. Other people would say that it has to do with uh, maybe your relationships. So maybe a marriage relationship or a certain kind of marriage or having children, having a certain number of children or not having children at all or having a certain number or a certain kind of friendship relationships that whether you're married or not stays with you all throughout your entire life. Other people would say that the life of flourishing is having a life that in general feels safe. You know, being able to walk outside your house and not worry about getting mugged, it's a good thing. (laughs) Being able to send your kids to play in the yard without having to feel like you need to constantly look out the kitchen window to make sure that they're okay. Being able to send your kids maybe two blocks up the street to a friend or neighbor's house to play without feeling like you have to stand on the street and watch them go the entire time, right? For other people, it may be feelings, certain feelings of well-being, Feelings of happiness or fulfillment or love or peace or whatever it might be. Now, we may prioritize these things in different ways. You know, For some of us, some of these things are, are, are more important to us than others. But the point is that every single one of us is actively constructing a life towards the end goal of flourishing. 
we are all living our lives towards what we believe is the end goal of flourishing. And the question that we must be able to answer, or the question that we must be able to ask ourselves, is are we on the right path? Is the life we're constructing actually what flourishing looks like? Because after all, wouldn't we want to know? If you were building your life towards an end that you thought was flourishing, and then you find out that, no, 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 that's not actually what flourishing looks like, you would want to course correct. The good news is that Psalm 1 tells us a lot about the life of flourishing. And so we're going to be spending time over these next number of weeks looking at what flourishing is and what it looks like as we experience flourishing in the course of our lives. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to do something of an overview of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And the reason we're doing Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 is because basically all scholars and all commentators agree that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together form the introduction to the book of Psalms. So to use an architectural analogy, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are the double doors that are the entry into the book of Psalms. There's a reason why they are Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, not Psalm 149 and Psalm 150. To use a theater analogy, all of the activity and the story that takes place in the book of Psalms is played out on the stage of Psalm 1 and 2. So Psalm 1 and 2 are uniquely together, this sort of introduction to the book, and I think that when we look at them together, we see that they function in a unique way. And what Psalm 1 and 2 do, part of their function, not all that they do, but part of what Psalm 1 and 2 do is they show us the identity of a person. That's what Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together do. They show us the identity of a person. And I think that as we begin a series looking at the subject of flourishing and abundance and prosperity and all of that, we have to begin by recognizing that our flourishing is found in proximity to the person that we meet in Psalm 1 and 2. That's the purpose of Psalm 1 and 2, is to give us the identity of a person, and our flourishing is found to the degree that we are in relationship, to the degree that we are in community with that person. And so we're going to look at Psalm 1 and 2 and see what they teach us about the identity of this person. So first, let's look big picture at Psalm 1, and as we do, what we see is that Psalm 1 shows us the truly righteous one. Psalm 1 shows us the truly righteous one. Now, the reason that Psalm 1 invites us into this life of flourishing, invites us into a life of delighting in God's instruction and meditating on it day and night, is because we are born into this world without the natural desire to love God and obey his instruction. It doesn't mean that we're all totally awful people who are as bad as we could possibly be, but it does mean that there's not a single one of us who, in and of our own natural self, delights in God's instruction and seeks to meditate on it day and night. In our natural state, we view God's instruction as an imposition on the life that we have, as something that is going to tarnish or ruin the good life that we are pursuing. But in his mercy, God has made a way. God has instructed us how to achieve a life of flourishing, and in Psalm 1 we see what the core of this life of flourishing is. It's the person who delights in the instruction of Yahweh, who delights in his law, and the person who meditates on his law day and night. The word meditate there is a word that literally means uh, to mutter under your breath, to murmur, or to mentally rehearse. So the flourishing person core of it is a person who delights in Yahweh's instruction and mentally rehearses it day and night. 
Now, this way of life, this Psalm 1 life of delighting in his instruction and meditating on it day and night and and then living by it, this life was what was expected of all of the appointed leaders that God put over his people in a very unique way. So let me just take you to a couple passages uh, that help sort of shed some light on this. So the first passage is Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. And just a little bit of context here. Moses has led God's people for 40 years. You may be familiar with Moses, the guy who led God's people out of uh, slavery in Egypt. They're wandering the wilderness. He dies before they go into the promised land. And Joshua is appointed as the new leader of God's people after Moses dies. And so as Joshua, rather, is going to be leading God's people out of the wilderness, which is this place of chaos and death, and leading them into the land of promise, which is a place of Eden-like blessing, God gives him this instruction. And notice the similarities between this and Psalm 1. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. So do you see the connections here? They're pretty obvious. Meditating, that's the same exact wordage. Meditating on the instruction of the Lord day and night, then you will prosper. So Joshua is to meditate on his word, to live by it, and as he does so, it will lead him to a life of prosperity. Then we can look at a passage like Deuteronomy chapter six, uh, 17. Rather. I'm just going to read you a couple verses from there. I don't have these on the screen. But this is God's instruction that he's giving to uh, the king who is going to reign over Israel. And so God's instruction regarding the king is this. Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 16, the king must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver or gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him. He is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over this kingdom in Israel. So the connection may be a little bit less clear than Joshua, but notice here in Deuteronomy, actually let's start in Psalm 1. In Psalm 1, you've got this uh, threefold prohibition, right? You're told three things not to do. So Psalm 1, do not walk in the way, stand in the way, excuse me, let me start over here. Do not walk in step with the wicked. Do not stand in the way that sinners take. Do not sit in the company of mockers, but instead delight yourself in the instruction of Yahweh. So three things not to do, and then what to do is delight yourself in the instruction of the Lord. Live your life centered around God's instruction. Then in Deuteronomy, you, you want to know how many things the king is told not to do? Three. Don't try and uh, increase the size of your military presence and put your confidence in that. Don't create a bunch of foreign alliances by creating all these marriages with the daughters of foreign kings. And don't put your hope and your security in money by accumulating vast amounts of wealth as if that's going to save you or help you. So don't do those three things, but instead, what's he to do? Keep a copy of God's instruction and to have it always with him. 
and to learn to revere the Lord. And what the result of that is, is that he and his descendants will reign over the land for a long time. They will be prosperous. And the implication is that as they are prosperous, so will the people be prosperous. So you've got something of a pattern of these appointed leaders that God puts over his people, and the expectation is that they are to live a Psalm 1-type life. They are to delight in Yahweh and to follow his instruction and to obey it. But it's not just them who are expected to live this way. The people are expected to live this way as well. God instructs the king to uh, keep this law, not so that when he has uh, sleep insomnia and he can't fall asleep, he can open up to the book of Numbers and start reading and fall asleep. That's not why he's supposed to keep the law. He's supposed to keep a copy of it so that he can model for the people what it looks like to delight in Yahweh's instruction and to meditate on it day and night and to live as a person who's been formed and shaped by the good, wise instruction of God. And as he does that, the people will see him and they will join him in that. So he's to teach the people how to do this. His life was a model and he would lead them in such a way that they also delighted in the instruction of Yahweh and meditated on it day and night. So here's, here's what we see with this. The people would find their truest flourishing when God's appointed leaders lived this Psalm 1 type life. In some unique way, as the leader went, so went the nation. When the king, when the leaders that God placed over Israel, when they delighted in the instruction of the Lord, the people prospered because they led them in that way. When the kings disobeyed, the people followed them in their disobedience. It's like the people's hearts were blown whichever way the king's heart was going. And so what we see in the Old Testament is that there are uh, you know, some glimmers of hope here. There's some kings who, uh, some leaders who have this, uh, have more or less of this Psalm 1 type life, but the vast majority of the people, they follow the, the, the lead of that leader. And so if the king uh, was giving his heart to idolatry, the people would follow suit. And so we see that when the king lived this Psalm 1 type life, the people saw it, they modeled their lives after it too, and the nation prospered. But we know in the Old Testament that it doesn't end that way. It doesn't end well. Because the kings did not delight in God's instruction. They did not build their lives on it. They gave themselves to idolatry, and thus so did most of the people. There There was a remnant, of course, who was loyal to Yahweh. But many of the people followed the lead of their king, and it led them into exile. God spit them out of the land of promise that he had placed them in and sent them into exile because of their life, because they chose not to delight in God's instruction, because they chose not to delight in it and meditate on it day and night. So we see these little sort of glimmers of hope, but the question that Psalm 1 and the rest of the Old Testament leaves us with is, where is God's appointed leader who will embody Psalm 1 and lead the people into this kind of prosperity? Where is that leader? Where is the leader who perfectly embodies Psalm 1 and thus leads the people into true prosperity? That's the question that it leaves us sort of longing for an answer to. Before we get there, let's go to Psalm 2. 
In Psalm 2, we see the other aspect of this person's identity, and we see that Psalm 2 shows us God's son, the anointed king. So we see that we're pointed towards the truly righteous one and God's son, the anointed king. Look with me, if you would, in Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. So here we see that the nations conspire against Yahweh. If you write in your Bible, which I encourage you to do, by the way, go ahead and go to Psalm 2, verse 1, and circle the word plot. Circle the word plot. Then go back to Psalm 1, in verse 2, and circle the word meditate. Because those are the exact same word. So in Psalm 1, you've got the righteous person who's meditating on, who's mentally rehearsing the instruction of Yahweh. And then in Psalm 2, you have the nations, who are in some ways a personification of the wicked person of Psalm 1, played out on sort of a global scale, The nations are plotting, they're conspiring, they are meditating on vanity. They're mentally rehearsing vain, empty, useless things. So the nations conspire against Yahweh, we see also that Yahweh mocks them. Verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And the picture we get here is that this king that God has installed is not just any king. He's not just the king of the nation of Israel. He's the king over all the nations. God has installed his king on throne, on the throne, and he is the unrivaled, unmatched king of all kings, which is why their meditating is in vain, because they cannot overthrow him. They cannot throw off his shackles, though they try. The third part of Psalm 3 is that Yahweh establishes his son as king. We're told this, the son speaks in verse 7 and says, He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them into pieces like pottery. We see lastly that Yahweh invites the nations to find refuge in his son. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so along with the warning of Psalm 2, that if you set yourself against Yahweh and against his anointed king, you will sit under the judgment of God. You will sit under the justice of God. Along with that, we also see the mercy of God and the compassion of God that he's inviting these nations to serve Yahweh with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling, to kiss the sun, which is a sign of, uh, it's a sign of paying homage to royalty. It's a sign of showing your allegiance. And so he's saying, This is what's coming for you. But Yahweh, even here, is inviting all the nations to experience the refuge that can be found in his son, the king. So Psalm 1 leaves us longing for the truly righteous one 
And Psalm 2 here leaves us longing for God's son, the king. And of course, as, as we talked about with the righteous person, there was little glimmers of hope. There was little blips on the radar of kings who actually uh, did this well. And we should recognize that and we should celebrate the ways that they led God's people. But so often, as, as we talked about, the hearts of the people blow wherever the king's heart goes. And the kings so often led them into a kind of destruction and led them into a life that was not flourishing. But you look at the strength and you look at the authority and you, go, you look at the worldwide rule of this king and you recognize that Psalm 2 is looking past every other one of the kings that was in the nation of Israel. Because there was never a king who embodied what we see here of this king in Psalm 2. And so that leaves us with the question, where is the king of Psalm 2 who will rule the nations with justice? So Psalm 1 and 2 both together leave us with this question, Where is God's appointed leader who will embody Psalm 1 and lead the people to prosperity? Where is the king of Psalm 2 who will rule the nations with justice? We're left sort of anticipating and longing for the answer to those questions. And God's people waited for a very, very, very long time. But in the New Testament, we come to see, finally, the identity of this person coming into focus. And what we see is that Jesus is the truly righteous one, God's son and anointed king. Jesus is the truly righteous one, God's son and the anointed king. He's the truly righteous one. In Jesus, God himself took on human flesh and joined us in our world. He accompanied us. He lived among us. And we're told about Jesus that he was tempted in every single way that we are and yet did not sin. He did not give himself over to sin or to idolatry. He lived a sinless life, but what Jesus did was far more than simply following the rules. Because we all know this, that it's possible to follow the rules and do so with a begrudging heart. Maybe you think about your, you know, your parents or your teachers, or you think about your boss, and you know that it's possible to follow their instruction to obey them and do so with contempt in your heart for them. And so simply following all the rules is not what Jesus did. Yes, he did that. But he fully delighted in God the Father. You know, we tend to negotiate our sin, right? Where we would maybe think to ourselves, um, what's the likelihood that I'm going to get caught doing this? that someone else will find out. Um, we may think, we may think something to the effect of God, just one more time and then never again, I promise. And we sort of negotiate with God. And I think what we see in Jesus is that there was never a moment in his life where he, his first impulse was not to delight in the Father and obey his instruction. In a way that I will never know, Jesus always, his first impulse was always to delight in the Father, to trust the Father. And so therefore, he submitted himself to the plans of the Father. And he did so without sort of a kind of begrudging spirit about it. He knew the Father, and as a result of knowing the character and the nature of the Father, he was glad to submit himself, even though it meant suffering, 
even though it meant difficulty, even though it's maybe what he would not have preferred himself, he didn't question the Father's plan. He delight, delighted to obey God's instruction. And so we see him living out this truly righteous life. And the good news is that the truly righteous one gave up his life in place of ours. And we see as Jesus hung on the cross, what happened was there was a reversal from Psalm 1 that took place. As Jesus hung on the cross, he experienced the fate of the wicked person, which he was not, so that we could experience the fate of the righteous person, which we are not. And Jesus was this truly righteous one that we see foreshadowed in Psalm 1. But not only this, Jesus was God's anointed son and the king. And the early church leaders knew this well, and they actually uh, quote from Psalm 2 to describe Jesus. So listen as I read from Acts chapter 4, where there's a couple of the leaders who were told by the religious Jewish leaders at the time, uh, you can't talk about this Jesus guy anymore. And they basically say, okay, we're not going to listen to you. And they go out and they begin to pray with their friends. And here's what they say. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up together and the rulers of the earth band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. So the leaders of the early church, they understood that the king that was foreshadowed, the king that was sort of, were left longing for from Psalm 2, that king was Jesus. And the way that Jesus expressed his authority and his rule and his reign looked nothing like what the people were expecting. Because the king from Psalm 2, remember what we're told about him. The king from Psalm 2 will break his enemies with a rod of iron. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. And Jesus, again, in a kind of reversal of what we expect, Jesus came and suffered and died at the hands of his enemies. He suffered and died at the hands of the nations. Jesus himself was broken. Jesus himself was dashed into pieces like pottery. So he experienced what the nations deserved to experience for their rebellion, and he did so for us. And so we see this picture of Jesus being the anointed king. But Jesus didn't just suffer for us. Jesus suffered and died, and then on the third day, he rose again from the dead, which demonstrated in a way that nobody expected that he has authority, not just over all of the kings of the earth, he has authority over everything. He's the one who has authority over all things. And so he rose from the dead, demonstrating his power and authority over sin and death and the evil one, and then ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he sits now and rightfully rules and reigns over all things. So Jesus is the king that we see anticipated and longed for from Psalm 2. So Jesus is the truly righteous one. He is God's son and the anointed king. And friends, the good news this morning is that our flourishing is found in relationship with him. 
Our flourishing is found in proximity to him by having our lives through faith hidden in him. Notice with me, we're going to look at this over the next uh, number of weeks in different ways, but let me just sort of draw us to a close this morning by observing with you that there is no list of circumstances in Psalm 1 that define the flourishing life. Psalm 1 does not say, blessed is the one, flourishing is the one who, and then lists all the things that are true about their life. You know, they've got safety and they've got a nice house and they've got, you know, 2.5 children and a white picket fence and they've got all the things that everybody says you should have to flourish. The picture we get is not of a specific set of circumstances because our circumstances do not define whether we are flourishing or not. We're told by looking to Psalm 1 and 2 and seeing the identity of God's Son and seeing the identity of Jesus as both his anointed king and the truly righteous one, that our flourishing is entirely found by being in proximity to him. And so what that means is that we can have great circumstances. We can have all the nice bells and whistles on life that make it enjoyable. We can enjoy those things and we ought to enjoy those things as God created us as material people in a material world. We ought to delight in experiencing what God's creation has for us. But we don't need those things to consider ourselves having a life of flourishing because our flourishing is not tied to all of those circumstances. And on the other side of it, we can have really bad circumstances. And I know that there may be uh, some of you here this morning who are in the midst of just grueling, awful circumstances that you do not wish on your worst enemy. There's pains, there's difficulties that you experience, and it can feel like, God, when is it going to be my turn to flourish? God, when are you going to take these things away so that I can flourish? And what Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 says is your flourishing is not found in having those circumstances reversed. Your flourishing is found by being in relationship with God's Son. And so no matter what our circumstances hold for us, we can be assured that through trusting in God's Son, by looking to Him, by giving our allegiance to Him, by looking to Him as the truly righteous one, we can flourish in any and every circumstance. Now, we're going to look more at what this life of flourishing looks like in the weeks to come. But I think it's important that we just begin by recognizing our flourishing is based in our proximity to the person of Jesus Christ. As we come to the communion table today, we get to remember and celebrate the gift of God's Son. We get to partake of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, which is Jesus suffering the fate of the wicked person of Psalm 1. It's Jesus experiencing the justice that was due on the nations who have rebelled against him from Psalm 2. And this is God's gift to us, is that he holds out this invitation like he holds out the invitation to the nations and says there is no refuge from him, there is only refuge in him. And so will you take refuge in Jesus today? As we come to the communion table, I want to invite you to take a few moments of silent confession and reflection. Our merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, 
in word and deed, by the things that we have done as well as by the things that we have left undone. We confess, Lord, that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, God, we pray that you would forgive what we have been. We pray that you would help us amend what we are and that you would direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. And all God's people said, amen.